guys. Welcome to another episode of The Culture Journalist. I'm Andrea Dominic. And I'm Emily Friedlander. So, remember when being a music fan meant falling in love with a label and collecting every single release? Today we're going to be talking about labels and the special role they play in the creator economy, past, present, and future. It's crazy because these days, when you hear about record labels, it's usually in the context of a high-profile artist going on social media to speak about being locked into a terrible deal, or some jaw-dropping headline about how the majors are making a million dollars an hour off of streaming as artists struggle to make rent. But until relatively recently, record labels, and especially independent record labels, occupied a much more influential position in the zeitgeist and one that's worth revisiting in context of today's creator economy. In the years before streaming became the de facto mode of discovery, one could argue that labels served as a sort of organizing principle for musical knowledge as a whole, crystallizing scenes and movements under a recognizable banner that pointed listeners in the right direction and amplified artists operating outside of the commercial establishment. Think how Discord Records nurtured DC's rich hardcore scene, how Mac Dre's Viz Entertainment ushered in the Bay Area hyphy movement, or Wax Tracks helping define the sound of industrial music in Chicago. In the 21st century creator economy, that feeling of being part of something larger than yourself and being able to benefit from the support of a community that has your back can be increasingly hard to come by. Which is why Yancey Strickler, a former music journalist and the co-founder of Kickstarter and the Creative Independent, had something of a eureka moment recently while revisiting Michael Azarad's groundbreaking chronicle of the 1980s punk and indie scenes, Our Band Could Be Your Life. Our band could be your life. Real names be proved. What if, instead of operating like independent economic agents, vying for our attention, streams, and clicks, artists squatted up and released work together? Before long, Strickler teamed up with a group of artists and technologists to start MetaLabel, an organization that describes itself as growing a universe of knowledge, resources, and tools that inspire creative collaboration, cooperation, and mutual support. The group, which includes musician Anna Bulbrook and Etsy co-creator Rob Kalin, has yet to reveal what those tools consist of, beyond hinting that they'll have something to do with blockchain. But, like other Internet's Squad Wealth article and Matt Dryhurst and Holly Herndon's interdependence idea before it, the meta-label concept offers some useful language for describing a paradigm shift that is clearly already underway. You can see it in how independent artists are teaming up to form DAOs or corporate media types hyping up the so-called great rebundling. Naturally, we couldn't help but want to dig deeper into the idea. Whether you're a musician, a writer, a fashion designer, or an activist, How might reframing our creative output as releases on a label free us up from the diminishing returns of the platform economy? Today, we're excited to welcome Yancey and MetaLabel co-founder Austin Roby, who's one of the brains behind the Digital Musicians Cooperative Ample, as well as Unnamed Fund and DinnerDAO. We discuss what the Whole Earth Catalog, the Creative Studio Mischief, and the Enlightenment-era Science Academy, the Royal Society, have in common. Hint, our guests say that they are all good examples of a meta-label. Yancey's dark forest theory of the internet, and how trying to keep up with the constant churn of content warps our priorities and values as creative people. And just as a quick reminder before we get into it, 
You are listening to the free version of The Culture Journalist. For the full episode, culture recommendations, and more goodies, subscribe to us for just five bucks a month at theculturejournalist.substack.com. And now, on to the show. Hey guys, we're back with the co-founders of Meta Label, Austin Roby and Yancy Strickler. To get started, let's go with the basics. What is Meta Label, as in the project that you started? Meta Label is a collective project whose goal is to manifest more mutualism, collective support, and co-creation in the world of culture. We are people who have been active participants in the creator economy. We built tools that have been a part of that world, but yet we're also people that have found a lot more meaning and enjoyment out of being part of a squad, out of making MetaLabel together, out of collaborating with other people on other projects. And so we're building a, a set of tools and a space for people to step away from the individual grind of being a creator on the internet, trying to get eyeballs each day, and instead to be a part of groups of people releasing ideas together, collaborating on projects, and creating a whole new norm for what it is to be a, a creative person online. And so MetaLabel is going to be a, a suite of tools and experiences and a network for groups to do that. And we're excited to talk about it here at an early stage in the, in the project's development. Now, zooming out a little bit, what is a meta-label as a concept? Yeah, totally. So a meta-label is a, a new term we're introducing, but it's an idea that's actually been around for a long time. It contains the word a label, which we know well from record labels or fashion labels. But we see a label as a really flexible entity, a, a meta-label is a group of people creating a common identity for some shared purpose and then manifesting whatever that purpose is through public releases that express their worldviews. So a punk rock label, like say Discord Records, you can think of it in the same context. It is a collective identity, Discord Records, that has a common purpose standing for hardcore and punk rock. And they have public releases of records and concerts and tours that are ultimately making more punk exist in the world. But we think that this form of people coming together around a, a collective cause is, is a really powerful model. Everyone hates on record labels these days because it's like the, the easiest sort of cultural punching bag there is. Uh, but it's actually a really useful model for artists and creative people to be resourced to share in economic rewards. Now, a lot of the labels that we know today are more top-down. They're more you know, extractive tools and things that are just taking ownership and a lot of funding away from artists. But the way that we imagine a meta-label, it's more a bottoms-up approach. It's a group of people who today are maybe grinding on their personal practice, but this becomes a way for them to pull their ideas together, to release work all under the same name, almost create a publication or a magazine together but to bring this way of collaboration to all kinds of cultural production, not just 
ma making records or producing editorial. But we think this model works around activism, around online communities. We think it, it clicks very well with Web3. And there's a lot of great historical analogs that we can look to to show that this is a model that has been really powerful for shaping culture. What would be like one small or really specific example of a project that a model like this could apply to? One that I, I personally am really inspired by is a group called the Wide Awakes, which is a, a group of artists and creative people. It was started by the conceptual artist Hank Willis Thomas. The Roots are members of this. Alicia Keys is a member. A lot of different people are. And they basically said, hey, if you want to create art that's trying to push for political change, let's all do it under this Wide Awakes name. And let's reinforce each other's ideas. Let's create a bigger audience for our work and a way that we can all can contribute to something that's bigger than us. And so for the Wide Awakes, if you're a member of that group, you might create some artwork or maybe you create some public installation, like they made a mobile soup kitchen, for example. And if you make that, we as a group, we will help produce it. We will help fund it. We will put our social media weight behind it. And it's a project that then isn't just you alone carrying all the responsibilities of seeing it from inception to execution. You have a crew of people you're collaborating on it with. And so the Wide Awakes invite people to be a part of their group. They have like an open source toolkit that describes how they do projects together. Another example is an internet first group of poets and technologists called Verses, V-E-R-S-E-S. -E and they have released multiple websites as political artworks where groups of people have come together contributing whatever different skill sets they have, whether they're a copy editor or an engineer or a writer or a designer, to together produce collective works of art and collective statements of values that were all made in a sort of open, flowing, emergent kind of way. And in both of these cases, these projects initially started with like a person having an idea of, here's something I'd like to create and manifest in the world. But they also quickly realized that doing it on their own was going to be too difficult, wasn't the type of experience that they ultimately wanted to have. And so you know, they ultimately collectivized their experience. They, they created processes for other people to become involved and figured out how to do that. And we think that type of project is, is really a, a role model um, for a lot of projects and for how to have cultural influence. And so what we see is that path of how a single person, say, finds a group of people to be a part of their project or how a group of people decide they're going to collectivize and release things under the same name so that they each benefit from the, the social cred built by everyone else in the group, that this is an increasingly common form for creativity and one that can grow even more if there are tools and, and a community and sort of a narrative to support it. Austin, you should talk. I'm talking a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think uh, one of the um, core thesis and arguments that we're thinking about at MetaLabel is what it looks like to shift towards a more post-individual creative economy. You know, things like creating a Patreon page or a Substack can feel very lonely and isolating and kind of scary. Emily and I know nothing about that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's scary. And I know this from talking to musicians that have started Patreon-like memberships. And I think it's something in the air that's shifting right now, which is people, I think, largely have a desire to do things more collectively. And that can take many forms. I think that's what's inspiring 
uh, a lot of the interest in DAOs right now. But I also think that this idea is broader than DAOs. And so this kind of like conceptual container of a meta label, I think is helpful for people to think about ways to structure work together. And, you know, it's not necessarily like a, a legal entity. It's a kind of like a way to give permission for working in a particular way. And like Yancy mentioned, there's, you know, a history of groups already doing this work, but if uh, given particular tools and contexts, ideally we could see more groups like this exist in the future. Could you both tell us a bit about your respective paths through the creator economy and the thinking and experiences that led you to this idea? Yancey's path is maybe more interesting. My path, let's see, I mean, a long time ago, was in a band that released music on MySpace. I guess that was my intro. Definitely used Bandcamp as well and co-founded a platform called Ampled, which is like a Patreon-like platform for musicians that is structured and operated as a co-op. So it's collectively owned by artists and workers. Uh, there's no investor ownership. And that idea is, is one step away from reframing how the creator economy could work, which you know has kind of like inherent platform risk of being owned by investors. So whether it's a co-op or a DAO, I think this idea of stakeholder ownership or artist ownership of platforms is really powerful. That's kind of like my, my framing, specifically through the context of working with Ampled, is rethinking our relationship of ownership to platforms. And through that process of working together as a co-op, it's been such a learning and unlearning process for me personally of working together and the power of being a part of a, a collective and experiencing that for myself. Yeah. And, and for me, my initial career was as a music critic and music journalist, freelancing for the Village Voice and Pitchfork and whoever would pay me anything to do anything. And that was like the first 10 years of my professional life. And it was during that period that Kickstarter began when uh, a new friend, Perry Chen, shared this idea for what later came to be called crowdfunding. And through Kickstarter, was able to create a door where a lot of people who are blocked out of the existing system, which was so much about, you know, corporate creative content and weird things or, or projects that were more esoteric and weren't trying to be big or weren't trying to be blockbusters. Those types of projects just didn't even fit. And Kickstarter has been an amazing channel for those projects. But where I found myself just a, a year ago was someone who was running an online community, a community called the Bendo Society, was supporting a lot of other projects, had a lot of writing commitments I'd made, newsletters, uh, some longer form things. And even though everything on my plate was something I had wanted and had worked hard to make happen, I found myself hating the experience. Huh. Why was that? I just was constantly thirsty and felt really alone. And even in my community, felt alone, felt like this person just holding all this responsibility. And the passion was harder to find. And it was around that time I was rereading a book called Our Band Could Be Your Life by Michael Azarad, which tells the story of history of punk rock and indie rock in America. And, I, and what really stood out were just 
how entrepreneurial the start of these scenes were, because these are people making music that nobody appreciated or liked. So they had to make their entire universes where punk rock and art rock and hardcore can make sense. And, you know, they were like world building, they were world building venues and labels and scenes. And they were doing that so that they, they could have a context where they, they were legitimate. And when I thought about the power of that work, and I tried looking at my own output of all these projects that I was underwater with, and when I thought of them as what if instead this is more like the catalog of a label and not just like this single creator who's in over their head, my whole emotional relationship to this work changed. I no longer felt overwhelmed by it. I felt empowered. And just because I'd released something before didn't mean I had to do it forever, like I could move on to another thing. And it also just really shifted my gaze away from how am I as an individual creator getting eyeballs to instead just seeing all the potential of collaborating with others. And that felt more and more like the goal I should be working towards. I didn't intend for it to translate into creating a, a startup. In no way was that a path that was clear to me. But for me, just trying to better understand my own realization, talking about it with other people who I respect and care about, like Austin, like the other co-founders and MetaLabel, and a bunch of artists who have been super helpful along the way, this just organically emerged as a thing that felt necessary. And even the way that we have come to work as a squad, the people behind MetaLabel, it is also constantly reinforcing this power of multiplayer mode, of how wonderful it feels to be creating things in a community of peers, how much stronger you feel in numbers of being with other folks. Just over and over, this experience has reinforced that there is a real power in this transition. And so I think we're, we're having a meta awareness of our own journey, and we're also trying to create the tools that we have needed and that we know from our conversations other groups need to help more people make this jump. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because Emily and I were just talking about how there's so many conversations right now around potential for other models for content, what that content looks like, how to distribute it, what the content itself is. But those same discussions often aren't really being applied to the generation of that content and the work it takes to produce them and the creation of ideas. And I think that's an equally ripe space for these kinds of models. Yeah, I would constantly feel as a writer, as a creator, you know, when I'm like, say, sending a newsletter, it feels like I'm writing something to these people, like I'm asking them to be my audience. And in many ways, I want to be with them. And I, I don't want there to be such a hard wall between me as a creator and them as an audience. And I think the work is so much better supported if, if there is a more porous membrane, say, separating these groups. And, and I think this starts to go a little bit in that direction. To me, it's a very interesting cultural moment where I can see a tide shifting a bit and people craving the actual creative production to be collaborative as well and like rethinking, how are we going to distribute this work? One question Yancey asked the other week I thought was really interesting. Are we going to be asking people to like and subscribe in 10 years, like in 2032? Are we going to keep doing that? Is Bandcamp still going to be around? Is that still going to be the home of independent music on Epic Games? It feels like a moment to be imaginative and rethinking our relationship to our online creative economy and how we're making work. Yeah. And it's 
kind of crazy because it really hasn't been that long since labels had this kind of important curatorial role in the landscape, especially during like my early career as a music journalist and through the early parts of the 10s, you really were following individual labels and entities and turning to them almost in the way that you would turn to like a record store clerk for a music recommendation or whatever. And then that has sadly become de-emphasized. You point to Our Band Could Be Your Life as that initial spark for this idea. What I'm curious about is what about independent record labels make it a blueprint for this idea as opposed to, you know, what people usually think of nowadays when they think of major labels and they think of them as these exploitative entities. Yeah. I mean, I I think major labels are creative IP controlling machines. Their ideal model is to make a loan to get the ownership rights of some IP and that they exploit it forever. To me, what's special about indie labels, and it's what I grew up in, like those are the most meaningful cultural touchstones in my life. It's just so obvious that those are being done out of passion. Very few indie labels are getting rich off of what they do. You do it because you believe in it, because you want to manifest more of some cultural worldview, some taste, your region, some point of view. I think of a startup as an institution for capital. I think of a label as an institution for culture. Money is an important component to that, is a fuel to that, but it's not the point. It's not what's centered. I think a label is different from a brand where a brand, you're creating like experiences that are all meant to feed back to a core product in the end. In the end, you're supposed to buy Sprite or Everlane or whatever. But a label, a label is centering like an aesthetic ideal. It's centering a, a way of living and it's funding and promoting different artists who all share that same worldview. And so I see that as like a a really generous and powerful and less selfish way of seeing the world. Yeah, I'm curious, why do you think that kind of model or ethos has disappeared from public view? I think a lot of why it disappeared from, from public view, one is just like the tenor of online life, where if you're an artist and you start talking about how much you love your label, it looks privileged. It definitely doesn't have the credibility of being indie, like even what being indie means has changed. And also just the creator economy platforms where all transactions are being executed through, those have intentionally de-emphasized labels. You know, if you think about labels in the past, they had a logo on the back of every product that they released. Within Spotify, you know, a label is a non-clickable footnote at the bottom of a page. It has zero presence whatsoever. It has been completely decentered. So I think that they are underappreciated, and I think that they have a power that is applicable to not just the world of music, but to all realms of culture. And the way I look at a project like, say, Mischief, I view Mischief as a label. I I think they're a meta-label. And the goal of Mischief is to reveal how manipulative capitalism is by making drops that are really manipulative using various tools of capitalism to reinforce that idea. The whole form of being a label, being a meta label is is such a key part to their context and the language of what they do. I just think it is a powerful model that is unpopular because of how shady the most prominent examples are and because the economics of our current systems 
don't really reward them, don't value them. But I think those are all things that are very changeable, especially if the label is reborn as a bottoms up way, the way indie labels were in the first place. Yeah, I sort of see it as consistent with just the decline of the human curator in favor of the platform more generally, like some of the same forces that de-emphasize labels also de-emphasize the music journalist is the person telling you, you know, what to listen to or the music magazine or even the record store clerk. But I think that people are maybe tired of algorithmic recommendation and they want to turn to people again and have that human sensibility and also a sense of mission behind what is being presented. The creator economy platforms have often vilified middlemen or intermediaries. And what has happened is platforms just become the middlemen or intermediaries. So instead of like a network of people that are mutually supportive, you just get faceless platforms. I mean, I'm personally just kind of leaning towards maybe intermediaries aren't as bad as we thought they were, or maybe a layer of supportive people aligning together is actually much better than just relying purely on these creator economy platforms. Right. I'd I'd actually argue that this is something I think a lot about Austin, and I'm really glad you brought it up because I think even the term middleman is kind of a misnomer, has kind of a negative connotation of being dispensable. And it's something that I think a lot of mainstream labels have sort of just accepted as their fate. And they're kind of flailing for relevance now and buddying up with platforms like Spotify as opposed to, I don't know, like what's another term we could think of here instead of middlemen, maybe um, community barrier. (laughs) But it's a really interesting point because it's become so synonymous with dispensability. It's also like there's this greater cultural turn also to people wanting human recommendation. You know, everyone I know is starting to spend their day in Discord. And I guess they still spend their time on Twitter. But I have this little Discord group, Andrea's in it, we share it with other journalists. And I trust the articles they recommend more than whatever happens to be floating past on my newsfeed. And I find much more interesting stuff that way. Yeah, I think there was a time where we assumed a neutral relationship with the different platforms that we use. I think today more people assume an adversarial relationship with the platforms we use. I don't think that's always the fault of the platforms. I wrote a piece a few years ago called The Dark Forest Theory of the Internet that argues that the reason why people don't share what they really think on social media is just they're logically and legitimately afraid of threats and that The main social media channels have a lot of predators, trolls, people who are looking to manipulate public opinion for their own economic gains or their own power gains. And people have rightly responded by turning into more of a shit poster or, you know, being quiet about their actual feelings. And instead, we've created more and more private spaces where we can be more real where we can say what we really think. And those are important, you know, because it's it's safer there. And in many ways, I see that what we're experiencing now is like a phases of evolution of that change to where more and more of us are being real in private spaces and are not speaking our minds publicly anymore. And as we're sharing our, our minds in private spaces, they're turning into projects, they're turning into collaborations, they're, they're manifesting things in the wider world. I think GameStop was like a particularly vivid and ridiculous example of this, but more and more the, these discords and other 
rooms where we are collaborating and conspiring, I think those are the labels and the culture-making venues of the present and the future. It's already happening, and we lack a language and a framework to really explain it or to talk to our parents or anyone that's not very online about the meaning of it. But I think more and more, that's where, that's where culture is being shaped. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I appreciate about MetaLabel, even just reading the preliminary materials that you put out so far, is that even the term itself sort of offers a language for talking about it. Music is so often kind of this harbinger of other broader systemic changes to come. I mean, you look at streaming, you look at formats, different types of organizing, even the Me Too movement. What do you think it is about music that makes it such a good fit for this model in terms of its broader applications? And what are some other examples maybe beyond what we've discussed here so far of what it could apply to outside of a music model? Well, in my research, what I theorize as the first meta label is a group called the Royal Society, which began in 1660 in the UK. And it was a group of 10 or so people who believed in a new idea called science and who pooled together money to start the first social club. And the goal of this social club, the Royal Society, was to promote scientific thinking. And so they used their money to fund the first scientific experiments, to make the first scientific journals, which were basically zines. And for about almost 600 years, they have been doing this, publishing this research incrementally. And by doing so, manifesting the enlightenment, manifesting the scientific revolution, putting a new way of seeing the world in people's minds, not creating like some single product, like here's science, but instead by exploring the idea publicly and inviting people to become a part of it. That to me, I look at as like the the ultimate canonical example of what is the power of a model like this. And I see its relevance in other spaces too. A, a group that we're close with and are among our early collaborators are Extinction Rebellion, the climate activists based largely in the UK who are making public rebellions every six months or so where they're having people get mass arrested and performing acts of civil disobedience. And for them, the idea of seeing themselves as a label is actually very helpful and very insightful because if they see themselves as an activist group, they feel kind of put into a corner that people don't really care about. You kind of get patronizingly pat on the head, good for you, but you're not a part of mainstream culture. And their goal is not to be an activist organization. Their, their goal is to shape culture. And they do it by trying to manipulate media and change how people see the world. And for them, the idea of being a label and thinking of their past actions as a catalog gives them a way to make sense of what they've done and to better plan what they're doing ahead. And we also think that this model applies to a lot of online groups, talking to the folks behind Friends with Benefits, the, the popular social club DAO. One of their mental models in creating FWB was to be kind of like a label. They're imagining what is like a modern digital version of a label. And they would have artists in residence programs, and they would have concerts and events and all kinds of things that FWB is making for their audience. So I think it's a form that isn't always legible, and we aren't always aware that that's what's happening. But I think that it's an infrastructure that 
is quite powerful. And music is just, it was probably where the model has gotten most deeply expressed, but I think it continues to be alive and relevant in a lot of places. Wouldn't you say um, in the mission statement that another example from like the deeper past would be like the whole earth catalog? Yeah, I think the whole earth catalog is a great example where, you know, the, the mission of the whole earth catalog, it's changing our relationship to useful tools. It's creating a new lens through which we see the world. There's this sort of uber goal, this higher level goal it's, it's trying to manifest. And so they made catalogs, they made periodicals for people to peruse and sort of shop these things or experiment these different ways of seeing the world. So there's like a duality to what it's doing. It's like giving you an actual catalog where you can choose things to adopt a different sort of lifestyle, a different way of seeing things. But even the existence of that project is itself like manifesting these deeper ideals. Even if you didn't buy something you saw in a whole earth catalog, even if you read it, it changes your relationship to the world. Yeah. The question about why is the music space such a center of innovative ideas? I, I've been asking myself that question too. We just finished participating in a cohort called Seed Club, which is like a Web3 native accelerator program for communities. And about half of the groups in there were music-based to the point where there was talk about just spinning out a music-based C-club cohort. The, the only way that I could explain it is just that music is uniquely such a core part of people's identities that I think even without any kind of extrinsic market-based incentives, people would still feel motivated to work on it. And there's so much room for experimenting with different modes of distribution or different ways of expressing scenes and how people uh, release work together. Yeah, and I'd say music is also inherently decentralized. You know, you often hear the phrase getting thrown around that music is the original gig economy. And it's inherently, it requires community. Like you can't do music on your own. If it's going to exist, it has to be shared. Yeah, what I was thinking was that from my experiences in music and coming up within the music world, a lot of what happens comes from people being in a room together, whether that's collaborating in a band or just the exchange of energy between audience and fan at a live show. And ever since the pandemic, there has been live music. Live music has come back on a level, but that kind of public space experience is no longer the central hub. We've lost that, like the feeling of being a part of a scene in a more physical way. And so I wonder if we need some ways of recreating that online or using the tools we have available at the moment. It seems like a very interesting and noticeable deficiency that we have now with our kind of like corporate controlled internet. It feels very difficult to create authentic subcultures or countercultures or scenes online now without having those dark forest spaces, which seems like that's where they're all happening right now. Totally. Have you ever heard of the theory of musicking? Musicking is this concept invented by the musicologist Christopher Smalls. And it was talking about how music is really not just the sound, it's the entire gestalt of the experience of the music and like that the audience is as much a part of the music as the performer, even the ushers, the space, everybody is kind of building that moment together. And it doesn't really exist without all of those parts working together, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, and I think it's that element of shared experience, right? We were talking a little bit about this actually a few episodes ago for when we were talking about the dark academia aesthetic and subculture. And what is it about books and literature in general that seems to be kind of having a cultural and subcultural moment? And one thing we discussed was the fact that, you know, books haven't really been platformed yet from like a community and cultural sense. But a younger generation can now listen to all of the music all of the time. It's all at their fingertips, right? There's not that experience of meeting the other kids who like the same music as you or getting in with your older brother's friends or inheriting a record or discovering one genre and letting that take you to another. And then there's the venue that specializes in that. You know what I'm saying? But I do think there's space to come back from that for music. And I don't think music is ever going to lose that. It's just about reclaiming those spaces from Spotify and other platforms. Yeah, there are zero people that look at the current music industry landscape and just say, no, I think it's perfect. I wouldn't I wouldn't change a thing. <laughs> so when you think about the contemporary platform fueled creator economy, what do you think is the most tragic thing about it? I, I think it's the making content just to stay on top of people's feeds. I think that rarely produces the best work or insights. I mean, there, there is something to like the, the muscle of writing every day, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be pushing yourself into everybody's inbox every day. I feel like during COVID, all of our content production schedules increased quite a bit because the speed of the internet increased. Where I found myself is locking myself into creative structures and patterns and commitments that ultimately were just burning me out. You know, I've often thought about creating some bot that just tracks every time, you know, someone writes a substack about going on hiatus. And like normally that follows, you know, maybe three or four months before they announced they were adding uh, paid subscriptions and they're going to be increasing their publishing schedule. And I think there's a catch 22 that we often get ourselves into because we are comparing ourselves to some of like, real top one percenters who are really great at writing and creating prolifically. And that feels like the bar we have to meet. And I think that, you know, just speaking from my experience, and I think is a common one that just can become really discouraging. And it, it really sucks the inspiration and the, and the love out of why you do something in the first place. And, you know, the, the cultural future I, I root for is maybe one where we're all publishing less, you know, maybe we're all supporting each other more. Maybe one out of three things that gets released, we're like the star of, and the other two times we're more of a, a contributor or a supporter of. And would that be a healthier creative ecosystem? Would that be a world where we're able to keep our love and our, and our fire longer and we're not burning it out, hoping for, I don't know what, hope, hoping to get seen. I think about just that, that, personal emotional experience of hunting for eyeballs and 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 hunting for relevance and and trying to be noticed and i just think that those are feelings that are often counterproductive with great creative work and meaningful work you know the squeaky wheel gets the grease but i think it's the it's the slower wheel that gets traction and in a universe where it feels like you know you have to be the most prolific to get noticed I don't think that we're learning the right lessons for our own creative practices and our own long-term mental and creative health. Exactly. I'm very here for a slow content future. 
a future where we return to thinking a little more before we speak. I mean, I think what you were just talking about is exactly why we have seen the decline of really any kind of meaningful criticism, whether it's music, film, writing, a great piece of criticism, you know, The New Yorker or whatever, notwithstanding, is starting to feel anachronistic, but we forget just how formative, influential, and important it is to have those kind of more zoomed out, thoughtful, nuanced discussions. We're repelled from examining the gray area with the way things stand. A thing that I think about is there was the Will Smith slap thing, right? And sure enough, dutifully, you know, not only all the publications were chasing that news and creating all kinds of takes and everybody on Twitter, but I received like five or six newsletters, like Substack newsletters in my inbox of people also providing their take. And I thought that the whole point of Substack was that you would be able to write about things that you couldn't find elsewhere. And I totally agree that it's the overproduction of content and the hamster wheel, but it's also the sense of not just producing a lot of content, but also producing the same content, like producing minute variations of the same thing all the time. And the thing that's crazy about that is that when I got into music journalism and culture journalism, the whole excitement around the internet as a tool was that it would allow the thing that was not the same, was not the big news item to find its audience or the smaller artist to find its audience. And I think that kind of got really lost at some point. Anyway, Austin, what what to you is the most tragic thing? Well, I think there are different stages of creator economy pitfalls. There's one, the kind of damage of the ad-driven attention economy. And I think that an answer to that so far has been the kind of direct subscription patronage models, like a Substack or a Patreon. I think it's a step forward, but I don't think those models are necessarily the answer. I think of Patreon pages like islands that individual creators make and invite people onto it. And it's really scary for kind of like any creator to ask for money in that context. I think very few actually are driving kind of life-changing income from it as well. And on top of that, you know, there still hasn't been an answer for these platforms not being accountable to the actual people that are building value for it. Still, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Substack or Patreon, all of the greater economy platforms are owned by investors. You know, Patreon has been through, I think, over 10 funding rounds. So it's almost certainly the vast majority is owned by investors. And I think the question that people would ask is, what are the interests of the behaviors of the platform if investor interests are different or misaligned from the creator interests, which is very easy to imagine. And I think most likely the majority of those interests are in opposition. Like who would win, the owners or the creators? So I think that reimagining a new online creative economy necessarily requires like a creative and nuanced and intentional way of rethinking not only how we work together collaboratively and release work, but how that informs our relationship to the platforms themselves, what kinds of public infrastructure we can use and ownership of these platforms. So this has been my entrance point into Web3. I think this is why Web3 is really interesting, thinking about public 
protocols that are free to use that can become new infrastructure and piping for building creative microeconomies and uh, Web3 enabled collective ownership of platforms. That's kind of the optimistic view that I see. Yeah, I was going to ask what alternative forms of economic organization does this concept sort of unlock? Yeah, I think a few things about Web3 are interesting. One is the concept of ownership represented through tokens. Really interesting in the things that can enable as well. An idea that Jacob from Zora has outlined, hyperstructures, these unstoppable free-to-use protocols that can basically be internet utilities for, for building anything on top of. So I think a combination of collective ownership represented in uh, interesting internet native ways and also public infrastructure where we're not relying on, you know, Amazon Web Services or Stripe Connect. Those two things are like what really excites me about Web3 and building on top of it. And if someone wanted to do this without using Web3 tools, are there applications you can think of like what the economic model might look like as well? Definitely. I think Web3 Rails are just a set of plumbing that is optimized for distributing value to different people. I mean, the you could see in the label model, something like a Discord records or touch and go records, they would have arrangements with artists they worked with that they would put up a set amount of money to pay for production and promotion of a work that the artist would fully own the intellectual property of their work and that the profits would be split 50-50 between the artist and the label. So that is like an, an established economic pattern that we look to as say one model but a sort of the function of a meta label of a group of people sharing a set of resources, distributing those resources to each other through arrangements they come to together. Those are all things that are possible without Web3. But just the, the tooling and plumbing of Web3 makes those sorts of interactions fairly automatic. And so that makes them, you know, I, I think an ideal place to exist, but we don't view meta label as like, you know, you're like going full degen board ape or something by, by being a part of this, like that is the last thing that we're interested in, but we do see distribution of value to the people who create that value as being a core component of what any platform should be providing on the internet in 2022. And Web3 offers the tools to do that. And so that component of it, we are very inspired by and, and think has a lot of utility that is going to be increasingly appreciated by creative communities who will be able to control their own destiny and be able to benefit materially and immaterially from the value of their work. So these kind of tools and models, it feels like such a ripe time for them and that there's really a broad cultural appetite for them. So what, what do you see as the current obstacles to meta labels or things that might hinder the concept from taking off despite this cultural appetite? Well, I mean, Web3 could be one has <laughs> just came up. There's a lot of rightful skepticism of that set of tooling, but you know, we, we think that will fade as there's more utility around it. 
I think that a lot of people are making that jump of saying, I'm not just going to do work for myself, that I will be a supporter, that I am willing to share my audience. I'm willing to share economic rewards with others. I think for some people, that's going to be a, a bit of a leap. And it's a kind of a record scratch versus what the sort of hustle culture um, of creativity online often reinforces. And I think that people are right now, they lack inspiring role models to think about. If you talk to someone about a label, they're they're gonna think of, you know, one of the million crappy things a major label has done. So I think part of our responsibility is to increase the surface area of great labels and projects to show people that this means of working collaboratively is something that is very doable, it's practical. There's all kinds of upsides and benefits to it. And and ultimately to do that, you know, in 2022 means creating some tools that make that easier. And so there's both like a a social momentum that we will need to create as well as practical tools that can meet people's needs and and can serve these use cases that that to us are so clear. And whether whether meta label becomes the nomenclature or not is less important to us than this transition into collaborating more in multiplayer mode. You know, I'm guessing the two of you and creating this together have also experienced a very different relationship of, of this work. And probably this project occupies a different emotional space in your life versus something you're doing on your own. And these are experiences more of us should should be exposed to. They're incredibly rewarding. And, you know, in, in many ways for me, just just being able to collaborate with a group of peers on MetaLabel is like solving the initial pain point that made me want to start this in the first place. That experience of, of creating with others is just deeply rewarding in ways that are hard to put into words. And so, you know, that could be a mountain to climb for some people. The hyper-individualization of our age is is intense and, and it's hard to break out of. But, you know, I, I feel in my bones that this is one of many projects that's going to help push us on a different trajectory. Yeah. Yancy, I fully agree with that. And just to add another note on kind of like the personal journey element of it, I, I think that that has to be one of the the biggest challenges that most people face. And, you know, I, I see it with people that worked with, I've seen it in myself, that, you know, a barrier to starting a meta label or kind of like any like creative collective, maybe that we're just personally unaccustomed to working this way. There's a lot of unlearning and a personal journey that comes along with that of working collaboratively and cooperatively with people. It's hard. It's it's really hard when we've worked, lived, and learned in rigid, traditional, industrial hierarchies our entire lives. So putting that into practice is often just a, a muscle that we're not culturally used to working out. So I think there is this is a moment for, for people wanting to shift past individual modes of creation. But I, I also think that this may be like a decades long transition if it is kind of like a broad cultural moment. And, and it also might not be for everyone either. I think some people may just prefer working as individuals or working within more rigid hierarchies. Yeah, I don't know. Like some people may also have had experiences with collaborations that maybe went awry because they had actually kind of been infused by capitalist pressures in one way or another. Or also, I think Austin, I think when uh, we worked on that piece together for FWV, 
you mentioned the famous quote about, what was it like socialism is too many meetings? Yeah, the, the hard part about socialism is that it takes too many nights and weekends or something. Yeah, and I work for a DAO now myself, Friends with Benefits, and yeah, it's definitely a lot of meetings, but you get used to it. Yancy, we are a big fan of your piece, The Dark Forest Theory of the Internet, which you mentioned. And the idea has actually come up on the pod before, during our discussion of the fate of counterculture of the digital age with Carly Busta from New Models. How do you connect the dots between that idea and the work you're doing now? Like you see the individual meta labels as like dark forest spaces? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I see them as a maturation of those spaces to where, okay, we've all created a, a safe space where we can talk about something that we care about. But you know, maybe a, a next step would be how do we publicly express and manifest what our worldviews are? And so it's, well, we start a label. We support and release work that fulfills our goals. We're doing work by ourselves and by others. And ultimately, I see all these things playing into a, a larger theory that Austin made reference to earlier of the post-individual. And there's a quote from Cahill's Normcore piece, quite infamous Normcore piece that has always stayed with me. Once upon a time, people were born into communities and had to discover their individuality. Today, people are born as individuals and they have to find their communities. And what I increasingly see online is a re-individualization of all of us. Like the internet is a big network, but the first phase of this has been to re-emphasize how we're all just individual nodes, like trying to get whatever it is that we want. But what's distinct about a post-individual is that they don't see their individuality as like a, an emancipation or an independence. They see it as something to graduate from. And what a post-individual does is they seek meaningful relationships and connections through groups. They're searching for groups through which they can define their identity, through which they can adopt a worldview, through which they can define who they are. And increasingly, your whole self means what are all the groups that you subscribe to? What are all the ideologies and theoretical friendships and relationships that you've created with different online communities, different online concepts or expressions of yourself? And that this is the thing that we're all carrying around now. And it's part of what makes us feel crazy. It's a part of what makes us have conflicting opinions. It's part of what has made the internet so tribal, just as we've gotten so global. And so I view that as like a neither a positive nor a negative evolution, but just a, a reality that we live within. And it just means that all the groups that we belong to are just that much more important to us. And so I sort of see there, there's past parallels of the moments when individualism was first created or past moments of peak individualism. Those were soon followed by waves of collectivism or new institution building. And one of the first things liberated people do is they create new groups that they can be a part of as liberated people. And so I think that we're in that phase of the human social internet development. And, and I view labels and what's happening in dark forests and squad wealth and a lot of these different concepts as all being signs of smoke that point to this deeper fire. That's it for the free version of this episode. But there's still lots of great stuff ahead, like what's next for Meta Label and what it'll look like a year from now, and the lessons and surprises Yancey and Austin have gleaned from their experiences with Kickstarter and Ampled. 
get all that and more by subscribing for just five bucks a month at our Substack. This episode of The Culture Journalist was produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and me, Andrea Dominic. Our theme music is by Mark Donica. For more on Metal Label and links to Yancey and Austin's work, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. If you like what you're hearing, give us a share or leave a rating on Apple Podcasts to help support independent journalism.